Football is more than just a game to most Americans. Some people play it, some watch it, and some complain about how much their mate may play it or watch it. Well, love it or not, football can be a reflection of America's character. And sometimes that reflection is hard to take. Good morning, I'm Robin Shannon, and this is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. This morning, we'll hear from Hugo Benavides, Associate Professor of Anthropology at Fordham University, about the culture of American football in relations to symbolism, gender, and more. But first, I was curious to hear what some women thought about this mostly masculine game. I stopped by Fordham's football stadium just before a Rams game and then attended a free football clinic where Fordham University coaches taught females the fundamentals of football. Here's what a couple of the women had to say. I'm Adrienne Pesci from Belmar, New Jersey. I only have a sister. My dad never had a son. So, I mean, we bonded just as well over football. I mean, that's what we do. I was about nine months old when the Giants won the Super Bowl in 90, and my dad was rubbing my head for good luck. It kind of started with that. My name is Kiara Weeks. I'm 20 years old from Cambridge, Mass. I think society perceives it as a guy sport, where it's not really encouraged for a female to be you know, involved in football, or more of it's more like, okay, be a cheerleader, more of like... A perfect example would be the game, um, the little—I mean, the movie *The Little Giants*, where you know Icebox, the girl, was like a tomboy. She wanted to play football, and her uncle was telling her to be a cheerleader, but she ended up prevailing and trying out for football. Hi guys, Becky. Look, I just came by to wish y'all good luck and have a great game. I'll be rooting for you. All right, everything's gonna be okay. Let's talk a little strategy, guys. Strategy? Without Becky, we're gonna be cream of wheat. Without Icebox, Spike's gonna rip up my face and wear it on Halloween. That's it. I'm leaving the country. I'm going to New Mexico. I'm a Zontag. Guys, 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 wait. I got something to show you. What? What is it? It's got your name on the back. So the guys at the morgue can identify the bodies. My name is Ebony Dunlap, and I reside in the Bronx right now. I grew up in a family full of guys, so I was surrounded by sports just in general. So something that, like I said, I grew up with and was a part of. And I even played a few sports as a uh, when I was younger. So definitely, it's you know I'm drawn to it, and you know because it's just part of you know my environment. Would you say, so you would say it's more of a masculine game? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and why do you think that is? Just because it's just so rough. Girls don't really like to be hit and knocked around like that all the time. And just it's very, what, how do they say, macho, I guess, yeah. Now we'll delve into the culture of American football with Hugo Benavides, Associate Professor of Anthropology at Fordham University. Hugo, welcome. Thank you. Okay, let's start off by you telling me about your, your research, the research you've done. Um, well, I just finished a manuscript on the relationship between football and horror films, and the main gist of the research was the role of violence in pleasurable pursuits in America, and how much what we consider fun or fun outings have to do with violence of, of very different kinds. Now, um you mentioned in your in the manuscript that you gave me that uh, professional sports fulfill certain types of identity functions for Americans. So talk to me about the connection between football and American identity. Well, um, it's, it's very interesting that football is a sort of repository of so many national characteristics. And, and that's not strange because sports do that in general all over the world. But I think what's unique is exactly that, that fo- football is a unique sport 
in the sense that it's only played in the United States. It's played in, to some degree in other parts of the world, but not as much as in this country. And so it doesn't represent what it represents for Americans. And in that sense, it has an enormous um, identification with symbolic warfare. I think that's one of its main elements. And also enormous amount of male bravado and male, if you want to call them, antics on, on the very public performance stage, like a peacock kind of expression to it. Okay, so can we get into the, the male bravado part of it? Yes. Uh, actually, I, I wanted to add to that because that was one of the things that I was really interested when I started looking at the football aspect of my research. But part of that male bravado what was interesting is also that there's an enormous amount of male intimacy as well. So at first it seemed a contradiction, but it's one of those things that I want to, to explore more, how these very intense levels of physical conflict or violence between men also allowed for enormous amount of intimate expressions between men at the same time. But um, one, I think one of the biggest aspects of comparison is that the other places where that occurs is also in warfare where you have very intense physical and violent experience that allows men to both be able to express these these high intensities of feelings, both in terms of violence, but also in terms of tenderness and intimacy. Okay, and we'll get right back to that, because that's uh, in, the, in, in the line of things I want to talk about. But when you were talking about American symbolism and how football is played here in the States, and explain a little bit about football. Isn't that how, is that how it's pronounced, football? It's considered football in other places is considered uh, our soccer here in America, correct? Right. Um, One of the main hypotheses I would say is that um, clearly there's something about the conquest of football, which is not really there in soccer. Um, They're both team sports, so you, you have both of that element. But in in football, what you actually are seeing is very much the the conquering of the other side, and and it's at the same time a physical depletion, right? It's not only that you're trying to enter into um, their end zone and make a touchdown, but you're also sort of grinding the team and the opponent as you go along. So there's something again very physical, very militaristic of football that seems to go hand in hand with the development of the nation as an empire in the last century. And I like that you mentioned uh, George Carlin, that George Carlin football reference um, from his comedy, uh, uh, what is it, Brain Droppings? Yeah. That was funny. And to sum this up, the object of the game is quite different. The object of the game in football is for the quarterback, otherwise known as the field general, to be on target with his aerial assault, riddling the defense by hitting his receivers with deadly accuracy in spite of the blitz, even if he has to use the shotgun. With short bullet passes and long bombs, he marches his troops into enemy territory, balancing this aerial assault with a sustained ground attack which punches holes in the forward wall of the enemy's defensive line. In baseball, the object is to go home. I'm going home. I'm going home. Uh, Again, it's this metaphor for battle. Um, Why do you think that is? Again, I, I'm struck by the sort of contrast between football and baseball. I mean, and, and you can see that, right? It's like all the um, the metaphors like end zone and uh, throwing a bomb and uh, as opposed to going, going home or getting home. But at the same time, I, I, I wonder about how in baseball you have all these foreign players that now play. In football, you don't have that. 
in football, you only have American players, right? There's no foreigners, and the only foreigners are sort of Polynesian, either Hawaii or other um, close-by islands, right? So again, I think you, you see something there which is incredibly nationalistic, even though it's not referred to as a national pastime. And again, there's different hypotheses. It would be hard to define which one is the most accurate, but there seems to be a relationship between those um, elements of uh, American identity, violence, and the fact that it's um, American players that play in the sport. Okay, now talk to me a little bit about the violence in your research. Um, it's it's incredible. I mean, um, and, and you, you can see the data on this uh, growing as, you know, as well, but the amount of bones that are broken and, and, and necks that are snapped every weekend, every every weekend, every Sunday and Monday is absolutely incredible to the point that by mid-season you actually have uh, injury reports, right? That each team sort of says, you know, how many of the players uh, will not be available for the rest of the season. And, and I think the statistics is as high as a third of all players every year won't be able to play by the end of the season, you know? And also you can see it in the mortality rate. The average football player lives only to be 50 years old. And, and again, this is because the toll of their body. They retire from football at, at around 30, 35 at the most, but by then their body is so banged up that they, they really are in really bad uh, health conditions. And, and so that also brings up other issues about, um, you know, is, is should we do something about that? Should the NFL be more conscious about that? But that's, you know, a separate subject as well. And did you study a little or research a little about that? Yeah. Um, it's 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 very interesting that you have older players now forming associations and trying to get more recognition for the contribution they made and, and how they're living in these very disabled conditions. And there's no recognitions from the NFL that this was a result of their job. And, and, and it creates a, an interesting conflict because in some ways this is something that the family members had been saying for a very long time, but they weren't taken very seriously because this is a man's sport and this is a man's world. But now it's those same men that actually, you know, are uh, holding all these records and are in Hall of Fame. And, and so that they have the recognition saying to them, you know what? This took a bigger toll than I thought it did. And and so it does create an interesting conflict because in the one sense, these are the macho icons that they want to look up to. And they're saying, ouch, it hurts. You know, this is not fair play. So, And let's talk a little bit about that also um, with the, the machismo, mm -hmm. I guess you would call it, uh, that goes into football. You do mention that there is there does seem you had a really good quote. Uh, you wrote in your research that manly love. Uh, would be a practice punishable with bodily pain. That was like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so talk to me about that. Again, it's something that I came to in the research itself that um, not only were players expressing this enormous amount of violence to each other, but they also were expressing another a, a lot of care and concern. And I think those are more maybe neutral words for it, right? Just um, picking each other up from the field or if somebody, and sometimes they would do it with the opponents, which is really striking, right? Because in the second before you're trying to hit this person, almost injure them, and then you're picking them up and really concerned about them, right? Or even more when somebody's injured and they can't get off the field, how the 
both teams actually go into the whole stadium into silence and some of them kneel from both teams and so there's this real care and concern and and to me what struck me is that one you don't see that in day-to-day life in the United States and that you even though you see it on the field you don't really pick it up until you're looking very closely and so that made me really wonder why is that element so transgressive because clearly they're stepping out of one of the roles or boundaries that we're brought up to act in or believe in and 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 then it sort of seems a natural relationship that they're able to transgress in that way because in some ways they're paying enormous amount of um, sacrifice to be able to do that and that sacrifices with their own bodies and what do you think the or what what would your theory be on the reason why that's not seen in, in normal everyday culture um, I'm I'm not <laughs> sure, but uh, th- there's something very I think dangerous in general. I think about intimacy. I-, I think that's why love is so complicated because it really sort of makes people lose and blur their boundaries. And then in uh, heterosexist culture, like Western society in general and the United States, those kinds of feelings are only supposed to be allowed for people of the opposite sex. So, you know, and then even then they're very complicated, right? So to have them towards people of the same sex, I think, just brings an element of anxiety. I, I, I just think it's it's honest anxiety. It's it's so different and new that it questions the order that we've been brought up in. So among all this violence um, that is associated with the game, there is some tenderness and some caring among the players and uh, a bit of togetherness. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the other interesting thing that I found is when you read a lot of these biographies that either were written or written with some help by these football players, all of them, on, or most of them, actually say that what they miss the most from playing is the camaraderie. That, you know, they, they don't miss, you know, the the rush or, or being seen as the hero and all, you know, all the attention or even all the women that they get from playing. But that what they miss is a sense of belonging, that they all, you know, every weekend felt like they had a home, you know. And so, so again, that to me is is really where the care and concern comes, right? That there's a sense of belonging that, that men in the society are really not allowed to express uh, a need for, a desire for. This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. I'm Robin Shannon, and I'll be right back to continue the conversation with Fordham professor Hugo Benavides about symbolism, gender, and American football. Please join the community of WFUV members creating great radio with their financial support. Our members contribute most of WFUV's funding. Your tax-deductible contribution will help pay for the music, news, and information you rely on from WFUV. Be part of the community of listeners who support this non-commercial public radio station. Join today or renew your membership at WFUV.org. This is Forum Conversations. I'm Robin Shannon, joined by Professor Hugo Benavides, and we're talking about football and culture. Now, Hugo, you mentioned that football players are often viewed as heroes, correct? Um, yeah, I, I started this research precisely because after 9-11, there was a, a, a very easy way to talk about heroes, right? Everybody sort of became a hero. And it's a word that's been used in the football field a lot. And since then, I think even more. And and again, I, I think there's there's a lot to the way that word is thrown around to represent that hero. And, and, and yes, it's always sort of seen in a positive light that because you're a hero, that means that you have super ordinary qualities, are a bigger, better man than most. 
and and in in a society that's competitive as ours, that is definitely an ideal. It's really what you aspire to, or or should aspire to. If not, there's something wrong with you as as a boy growing up. But at the same time, what I don't think is seen is the price that you pay for that identity. That be to be seen as a hero is in some ways inhuman because you know it denies any limitations or any needs that you might have, and and that takes a, a gigantic toll, right? It takes an emotional uh, emotional toll. But again, that's like the amount of physical work that these players as athletes have to do to keep their body week after week, and then even in the off season is extra. It is extraordinary, right? And 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 it does take a toll on their bodies. And you mentioned that um, often that that this is something that people aspire to, that, that young boys aspire to be this hero, this football hero. And in your research, um, you made an uh, interesting comparison between um, the financial compensation and the uh, intellectual uh, excellence at some schools that they go after these students and there was sort of a, a financial imbalance. You want to talk about that? Yes, um, and and mainly it's in the sense of college football, right? That a lot of these universities go uh, out of their way and do very, very heavy re- recruiting to get the best football players out of high school to compete for their schools, and and then this is a real attraction in terms of resources and money and television money and um, just just attraction to the universities, attention to the universities, but. Up to now, it's been very clear that the what the athletes get the, the, is is a college education, right? But more and more, again, it, it, the question is 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 that a fair exchange, right? They're getting an education which otherwise they wouldn't be able to get, but at the same time, they are producing an enormous amount of revenue for these universities that they're not seeing any amount really off. And and again, the other question is in a sport that is so dangerous a lot of these students get injured and once they're injured right they're off the roster and that's it right i mean if the university is really generous they'll finish their education but most of the time that doesn't happen so and also if they want and you've seen more and more of this with college athletes that if they want to do a professional career and it's a very very small percentage that would be able to do that the longer they stay in college, the more likely that they're going to get seriously injured and not be able to play professionally. So now they're also having to decide, you know, am I going to play for free and maybe injure myself and get all this glory or actually, you know, be selfish and take care of my of my body and say, I won't play for free and I'm just going to try to enter into the NFL at an earlier stage. What's interesting about that, though, is that the few athletes that have even pondered that decision get so maligned by the media because they're not right really about the ideal of the sport and they're being selfish. And what's interesting to me is how sort of the problem is switched, that the the fact that these students are really being exploited, if you look at just from a financial point of view, is completely denied or ignored. And, and so it's the universities and the system and the media that's being selfish, but somehow they expect the one student to be sacrificed and not uh, the other way around. So doesn't that go into what we were speaking about in the beginning about the uh, symbolism of America and how you should strive to be this uh, to make sure you stay within the boundaries of what this symbolism means? Absolutely. And and to not sort of scratch under the surface and really wonder what what 
sacrifice is being demanded and who really is the one that's making all the sacrifice, right? And it, it, it gets even worse, I think, when you add the element of race into it. Um, if you look at a lot of the black football players and their biographies, it's amazing how bitter they are and how much they talk about the experience in the NFL, almost like a sort of very modern and, uh, plantation system, right? Where, yeah, they got they got paid for what they did, but they really never owned their own um, agency or their own bodies. They always were sort of responding to the man. And to me, once again, there's there's a whole this mythical construction, right? This should be a way for them to be free and to experience, you know, full recognition within the American landscape. And yet their experience is completely the opposite. And so if they're not getting that experience, what can we expect from everybody else? Now, I remember this running back, Ricky Williams, he left the Miami Dolphins and at the time said that retiring was the most positive thing he could have ever, ever done in his life. And um, he had other challenges. We know this, but ultimately people really didn't understand how he could just walk away from football. And when he said, I'm out, right, they all thought that he was crazy. And again, that's that's very interesting. And, and there were a couple of uh Reporters, uh, particularly one in the ESPN magazine, that actually sort of pointed that out and said, "You know, come on, guys, let's let's look at the situation and realize that you know maybe he's not the crazy one. That it's really maybe us that are putting an enormous amount of infatuation and also enormous amount of denial onto football and sports because so much of our daily life and so much of our national life is so problematic that we want this escape. And when this person is unwilling to give us that fantasy, all of a sudden he becomes." the scapegoat and responsible for absolutely all the other things we don't want to look at. Tell me a little more about the uh, fantasy part of it. Um, it it's it's it, again, I'll, I'll, I'll use the same example, because one of the things that was also denied, I think, of football players is how smart they are. Right. That I mean, just the amount of plays they have to remember and the amount it's like dancers, right? The body memory that has to go into this to be able to play is absolutely unbelievable. Because I think as an audience, all we want to see is sort of how it comes together. And, and I think it's not very different from dance or ballet that what we see is this, this is incredible performance out there. And football is like that. It's at its peak. It's just absolutely uh, beauty, right? It, it actually works and everything connects. And, and, and so in some ways, there is a pleasure to that. And, and that is the ideal. And, and that should be recognized. But we only want to stay in that fantasy. And I think that becomes really problematic. I mean, we have no problems recognize, recognizing how much a ballet dancer or dancers work and how much toll it takes on their bodies. But that's something about football we're really not interested in. We're really in sort of having it be this public performance that in some ways reflects our fantasy of what we really think we are or we really should be, but really are not. So you do have a very interesting connection between football, the fantasy, and then as you go into it, film. Mm -hmm. uh, specifically horror films. So talk to me about that. Well, I, I, it, it, it sort of was, uh, again, uh, just a natural progression of the research because I started with football films and I started looking at football films 
And what struck me about them is not necessarily how bad they are, but how melodramatic they are, right? That all the football films really have to do with this American myth of the one person or the team going against incredible odds, you know, fighting to the last drop. And then just about the moment that you thought it's all over, they actually conquer. And that doesn't mean they win all the time, but they actually conquer. And that conquering can be themselves, their fears. Hugo, that brings to mind that football film Brian's song from the 70s, it really speaks to what you're saying. I'd like to say a few words about a guy I know, a friend of mine. His name is Brian Piccolo. And he has the heart of a giant. And that rare form of courage which allows him to kid himself and his opponent. Cancer. He has a mental attitude which makes me proud to have a friend who spells out courage 24 hours a day, every day of his life. Now you flatter me by giving me this award. But I say to you here now, Brian Piccolo is the man of courage who should receive the George S. Hallis Award. It's mine tonight. And Brian Piccolo's tomorrow. I love Brian Piccolo. And I'd like all of you to love him, too. And tonight, hit your knees. Please ask God to love him. But they faced up to this reality, which I, which I think is sort of this American myth of the frontier and the unknown, right? And so, again, I, I, I saw it as an initial contradiction because here is this really hard, macho, violent sport, and all these movies are tearjerkers, right? All these movies are really, you know, I mean, they pull at your heart. And, and again, that made me realize, like, what seems like a contradiction really is not because that is at the heart of football that there's something there that that really is questioning our sense of belonging and really what we miss the most, what what we desire the most, but are not even able to pronounce it, right? So so that was the first linkage between violence and uh and films, right? And and this melodrama. And of course after that it was interesting to see how many horror films actually have some sort of athletic element into it, right? that it's either their cheerleaders or the athletes that get killed one by one, right? And it actually started with Jeepers Creepers, even though it's not a football team, it's a basketball team that gets picked off one by one. So that, that again, made it a natural connection of, you know, uh, violence and horror, but also youth and an American ideal. So that's where that started. So what did you, what did you come up with? What was your, what was your conclusion? Um, I think it was... <laughs> that there there's something really distasteful about the myths we have created 
that we want to see ourselves as all nations do, but I think empires even more as this really, you know, beautiful, pristine and democratic ideal, not as something that we're uh, striving to, but something that we are already. And one of the things that I think both football and horror films do is that they actually allow us to deal in one way with the um, repression of what really happened. So that these elements of slavery or these elements of genocide, how we just completely obliterated Native American populations, all of that is somewhere underneath our psyche, but we don't let it come out. But it's constantly fighting against us and against our ideas of what America is. And I think in both um, football and ho these horror films, we're able to deal with that internal violence in a safe way. So this is not really hurting us physically or mentally, but in some ways it is, a is allowing us to do some level, I think, of cathartic or therapeutic work to deal with these murderous instincts that we've we've really inherited from, you know, generations. My last question, are you yourself a football fan? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> that's, that's where it actually started, uh, from watching and loving football and then realizing that there was another side to it that was also equally as strong and that I didn't understand completely, but that I think after 9-11 became just much stronger, that there was a, a real sense of identification with an American ideal that even got stronger. I think it's always been there, but it got stronger. And so that became more of a question than ever before. And what's your favorite team? Uh, it has to be the Dolphins, I think. Why? <laughs> um, I'm, you know what? I'm not absolutely sure, but uh, I'm not sure at all. <laughs> I won't even try that one. So that that we could do that. An interesting study on that. People who love teams but don't know why they love them. Yeah, because I, I mean, I'm supposed to love the Giants and the Jets, which I do and watch every week. But I have to admit that there, there, there's something about Miami. And maybe it's just because there's more Latin Americans living in Miami of different countries than any, any other city in the country. But I don't know. My thanks to Hugo Benavides, Associate Professor of Anthropology at Fordham University. And a special thanks to Liz Brocklin for her production help. For Fordham Conversations, I'm Robin Shannon. Stay tuned for Cityscape with George Bodarki on 90.7 WFUV.